Let me pray, and then we are going to return to our regularly scheduled program. Father, thank you so much for the grace that we have gathered to celebrate. Thank you so much for your mercy. Uh, Thank you so much for your steadfastness. Thank you so much for your strength. Lord, thank you so much for your initiative. Whether you are the one who has come, you are the one who has rescued us, you are the one who has redeemed us, you are the one who is restoring us back and into the purposes for which we were created. And Lord, we ask in the time that we have together this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you would use my words and your scripture to continue that process of restoration, continue that process of redemption, uh, that you would make new in hearts and alive in hearts what may be new or what may have been dead, what may have grown cold. May you break apart. May you fan into flame again. And we ask this morning that in the time that we have by your spirit, Lord, we would leave this place being able to increasingly enjoy your grace and engage in your mission in the place where you have put us. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Redemption Hill, we very simply, I'll turn my clock on for your benefit, we very simply exist to enjoy God deeply and to engage in his mission fully. It's really that simple. When we talked about this last week, we're going to talk about this, this entire series in the book of Acts. We exist to enjoy God deeply and to engage in his mission fully. It's really that simple. And it's really that big. Do you catch that? It's really that simple. Enjoying God deeply Engaging in his mission fully, but it's really that big. And as I have prayed for us in studying the book of Acts, as I have prayed for us continually from the day that we've started, as I think about the simplicity, but yet the magnitude of the purpose for which we're here, I struggle with an uneasiness and a discomfort because we find ourselves in a very dangerous place. I think we find ourselves in a very dangerous place of missing the simplicity and at the same time missing the profundity of why we're here. See, we, we find ourselves in the context of a, of a system of religion in, in, in this culture that has done a very, very good job at creating processes and and systems and and, and programs and and opportunities for people to gather together to to hear something, to to gather together to be transformed by something, or very simply, when we boil it down to its lowest common denominator, to just gather together to be together. We've become very good at creating programs and systems and structures that boil the purposes of God down into gathering everybody here. And yet they require little to no dependence, little to no power from the very Spirit of God himself. We've become very good at creating things in our own ability and in our own wisdom, dependent upon our own strategy, 
to gather people together to such a degree that we can become very, very confused by the presence of people, by the presence of bodies, by the multitude of chairs, and we can become very confused for the presence of religious trappings, thinking all along that because there's bodies in the seats, there's spiritual life and maturity going on. I read this recently, and it, it, it shook me. The writer said, it's possible for us to carry on and appear successful and in the end realize that we did it all and the very spirit of God was absent. It was a deadly mistake that we've made. We've mistaken the presence of bodies in a building for the presence of spiritual life in the church. The greatest hindrance to the advancement of the gospel, the greatest hindrance the mission that God has called us to engage in, that our stories, that our lives are a part of, may be the church of God attempting to do the work of God apart from the Spirit of God. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, saying we, we have done so well at creating processes and systems and structures to gather people together. We don't have to pray and fast for people to gather together anymore. We can get good websites and good marketing materials and, and good buildings and good presence in places, and those things aren't bad. Those things are not bad at all in and of themselves, but when those things become the main thing and our dependence grows upon those things, we can create things in our own wisdom and our own strength and our own strategy that require little to no presence of the very Spirit of God himself. And the writer went on to say that the sin of self-indulgence around us, the, the sin of self-satisfaction around us is not as deadly to our mission as the sin of self-sufficiency in us. We exist simply to enjoy God deeply and to engage in his mission fully, and that is simple and it's profound, and we're in a dangerous place where if we're not careful, we've, we may miss it altogether. And we can find ourselves mistaking the presence of people, the presence of activity, the presence of busyness, the bells and the whistles, for the presence of real spiritual life in the church. And as we've been looking at the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, we've seen that Jesus gave his disciples, he gave his people, he has given us a mission, and he's promised us in that his very presence and his very power. But yet when we think about what he has called us to do and who he's called us to be, given the promises that he has made, how do we actually respond? How do we actually respond to those things? And here's the question that I ask myself and we'll talk about this morning. When it comes to how we respond to the mission that God has given us based on the promises that he has made to us, would we characterize ourselves as delusional or dependent? Delusional or dependent? So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 1. We're going to continue in our look at, at this book. And this week, we're going to continue. For the first couple of chapters of Acts, let me just continue to clarify for you. We are going to be laying some foundations and paying attention to some things that we're going to see throughout the entire book. So I'm going to draw your attention to a number of things this morning, but there are things that we're going to see consistently throughout the book, so I'm not going to get into them too much. I think this morning is more of a 
a time of exposure, maybe trying to pull some, some curtains back on some ways that we think and some things that we hope in and some things that we trust in. So if you've got your Bibles, Acts chapter 1, uh, we'll start in verse 6, and I'm going to read, and I'm going to read through the end of chapter 1 because I want you to hear it all, and then we're going to pull a few things out as we go. Acts 1 verse 6, so when they had come together, he's talking about it, this, the disciples, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we talked about this last week. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was all in all, about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted to share in his ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness. And and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so the field was called in their own language, Akadelma, I guess. That is, the field of blood. Thanks for interpreting that. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John till the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Mattathias. And they prayed and they said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Mattathias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. They've been given a mission. They've been given a promise, just like us. How did they respond? How would we respond? How do we respond. First thing I want you to see, and we're going to go for the big, big E on the eye chart. I don't want to get too complicated. We're not going to get too tricky. First thing, how did they respond to the promise that they were given, the commission, the mission that they were given? I mean, I mean remember, put yourself back in the place. They've, they've walked with Jesus. They've served with Jesus. They've, they've seen his ministry performed. They, they witnessed his crucifixion. They fleed. They fleed in fear and terror and confusion when that day came, but they've witnessed his resurrection, and Jesus has spent 40 days with them, teaching them, giving them proofs of the truthfulness of who he was in his resurrection. Back at the end of Luke, you see, he taught them how all of Scripture, all of the Old Testament related to him. He taught them to see himself in all of the Bible. He taught them and convinced them of the proofs of who he was and why he was here. They had been with him. 
They said, now, now, now it's going to happen. Now the fulfillment's coming. Now the kingdom is back. Jesus, when are you going to do it? And he said, no, that's, that's not, my, not my plan. Here, here's my plan. You will be my witnesses. Remember? We talked about this last week. You will be my witnesses. And all of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, Luke records in the end of his gospel that Jesus said, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise that's going to come. And you'll be empowered, he said, in the beginning of Acts with the Holy Spirit. How do the disciples respond to this mission? How do they respond to this promise? Jesus is taken away from them in their sight and in their presence. What do they do? Well, first thing I want you to see, because I want you to see it throughout the book of Acts as we go, this is how they respond to the promise of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. They were simply obedient. Don't overlook obedience. Jesus is taken up from their sight. The angels appear and say, why are you staring up in the sky? He told you what to do. The next thing you read is what? Verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem. Jesus had told them, you will need to go to Jerusalem and you will wait for the promise of the Father to come. They were simply obedient. Now, I don't want you to miss this because I think that we have a tendency sometimes when it comes to the mission of God in particular, the call of ours to engage fully with all that we are and all that we hope into the purposes for which God has created us, the mission of God's redemptive restoration of all of his creation, to be his witnesses here in the place that he has put us and to the ends of the earth where he would call us. I think if we're honest, obedience is not one of the first things that would characterize our response to the mission and even the promise. We have created a whole host of ways to justify getting the weight of that mission off of our shoulders and yet finding someone else to carry the, the burden and the weight that we so feel like we don't want to carry or shouldn't carry. We've justified our reluctance. We've justified our disobedience by convincing ourselves that someone else would do better at it. Someone else would be more equipped. Someone else could do that. Our mission is just not for me. But unlike us, the first thing you see about the disciples is that they were simply obedient. Nervous, probably. Hesitant, probably. Skeptical, maybe. But nonetheless, they were obedient. Now, I want you to see what their obedience was characterized by. See, they were, they were obedient, but their obedience was characterized by dependence. You see, they didn't get this mission, this commission from Jesus to be his witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And in response, they didn't gather together, start pulling out calling cards and strategizing and saying, who's got contacts in Jerusalem? Who's got contacts here? Who knows so-and-so here? Let's get on the horn, call the guy, the strategy guys, call the branding people, call the marketing people, call those you know in that place, and pooling their resources and coming up with a strategy to do the very thing God said he was sending them out to do. They didn't come together with their own collective understanding of what Jesus said to do and then figure out how they were going to go about doing it. Their obedience to Jesus' command based on Jesus' promise was characterized by a dependence. They were waiting for the very presence and power of God that had been promised to them to do the very thing that God was calling them to do. 
Their actions didn't seem to portray the the self-sufficiency that so characterizes the way that we go about filling the, the call of God that he has given his people that has stood from this day going forward. When we grab a hold of this command and this mission of Jesus to be his witnesses in the place where he has put us, this command to enjoy him deeply and engage in his mission fully, if we're honest, the first thing that we do is figure out what we've got so that we can build it, so that we can put it together to do the very thing that he has done. And we, we exchange dependence for self-sufficiency, but not the disciples. They seem to, they seem to display a dependence upon or a, a desperation for God's spirit that they had to have before they could move forward. They seemed to display a, a desperation and a dependence upon the presence of God and the power of God to move forward in the mission of God or else they wouldn't go. Reminds me a lot of Moses in Exodus 33. In Exodus 33? Refresh your memory. The people of God were in bondage and slavery in Egypt and God raises up a man. He raises up Moses and he tells Moses that he's going to be his man, and through Moses, he's going to deliver his people from Egypt. And Moses balks just like us. Can't do it. Not the right guy. Find someone else. Makes all the same excuses, but God says, don't worry, Moses, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. And God delivers his people from Egypt, and he leads them through the desert. He parts the seas. He walks them through the Red Sea. He collapses the sea on the army of Egypt in his, their pursuit to destroy God's people. They God leads his people by a pillar of fire and a cloud and he provides water out of rocks and and bread from heaven and and he he leads them to the base of Mount Sinai and and Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai to meet with God and to experience the presence of God, to get the directives of God for God's people. And while Moses is is up on Mount Sinai meeting with God, getting God's directives, his, his rules of grace for his people, you know the story, the people of God are gathered together, taking all that they can find to create an idol out of which they could worship to make sense of what God had just done to deliver them from where they had been. And You get to Exodus chapter 33, verse 1, and I want you to hear this. I want you to listen to this. Exodus 33, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you. I'm not even going to give you the land that I promised, but listen, I'm going to send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I'm not going to go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Down in verse 15. And he said to him, talking about Moses, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please, show me your glory. Did you hear what happened there? God said, you can have my promise. I promised a land flowing with milk and honey to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you can have that land. You can have that promise, but not my presence. 
Go ahead. I'm actually going to send an angel out in front of you to wipe out the people who are inhabiting the land that I have promised, and you can take the people of God, lead them into that place, and you can have the very thing I promised, but I'm not going to go with you. You're not going to have me. I had to think, how would you respond to that? How would I respond to that? How do we respond to that? God said, here's what I'm going to do for you. Not only am I going to rescue, I'm not only going to redeem you, not only am I going to restore you, But out of my love, I'm going to involve you in my purposes and plans for all of creation. You're going to go, you're going to be my witnesses, and I'm going to empower you, but we want his presence with us. told Moses, you can have the promise, you can have the success, you can have the land. I'll even clear it out for you, but you won't have me. And Moses I believe Moses saw the magnitude of the promise, the the magnitude of the blessing, the magnitude of the faithfulness of God, and the magnitude of the task before him leading these stiff-necked people that he had been leading already into that land and then realized his ineptitude and realized his lack of resources for the task ahead, but realized the purpose for which he had been called. And he said, how will the nations... How will the people far from you come to know you? How how will your glory be reflected in this people if your presence is not among us? How will we be the people that you have created us to be if you're not with us? I don't want the promise. I don't want the land. I don't want the success. I don't want the victory on our behalf if you're not going to be with us. And if through your presence, other people won't come to know you as you had promised, because the promise to the forefathers wasn't just a land. It was that through them, God would bless all people, that the nations would come to know God for who he was through his care for and presence with his people. And Moses said, I can't exchange your glory and the blessing to the nations for the simple satisfaction of the land and the outward appearance of success and victory. See, the magnitude of the mission before Moses, the magnitude of the mission before the disciples, the magnitude of the mission before us should drive us, compel us, produce in us a desperation. It should produce in us a deep desperation for the presence and the power of God himself. And if we're not careful, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, if we're not careful, we'll take that mission and we'll shrink that mission down to the size of ourselves so that we'll only be able to do and only be able to accomplish that which we can do on our own. And we'll get really good at creating systems and structures and strategies and programs and plans to gather people, to look victorious, while exchanging the very presence of God and the power of God and the depth of true spiritual life and maturation for the reflection of that very thing. As long as we think that we can organize and program the mission that God has called us on, we'll fall flat on our face. Jonathan Edwards said that only God is able to do the work of God. And apart from the Holy Spirit, there is nothing that we can do for God in his mission.
question is, do we believe that? Do we believe that? Do we believe that we can do more in one month of dependence to the power of the Holy Spirit than an entire year of our own best strategies and best efforts? Do we really believe that God can do more through us in one month by his presence and through his power than we can do with our best effort and our best strategy in an entire year? Do we really believe that? Have we shrunk the magnitude? Have we taken the simplicity and shrunk the magnitude of God's mission for his people, for his church, such to the degree that it only requires the strength and the wisdom that we have in and of ourselves? As I thought about this and have prayed through this and reading this in the book of Acts, if I'm really honest, I, I would say that I don't, in, from a characteristic standpoint, I don't see a pastor here. I don't see myself standing before you as one characterized by one with a deep, deep, deep and abiding desperation for the power of the Holy Spirit. I am one who is easily compelled, easily sidetracked, to shrink God's mission down to the size of my ability. Finding myself, figuring out ways to organize and accomplish the mission of God apart from the presence and the power of God. And I would say as a people, this church and the church, especially in this culture, is not characterized by the depth of desperation, the depth of dependency upon the Spirit of God and the power of God to accomplish the work of God that would reflect an understanding of the magnitude of the mission of God as he's revealed it in his word. And that scares me. It scares me to death when I see that in myself, when I see that in us, when I see that in God's people, it has frightened me because it reflects one in arrogance, it reflects a self-sufficiency, and it reflects a lack of understanding of the very thing that God has called us to be and the very thing that God has called us to do. Are we growing? Yes. Busy? Yes. But dependent and desperate? Right now, I'd probably say no. I'd say no. So they were obedient. Unlike us, very often, they were simply obedient. But their obedience was characterized by a dependence and a desperation upon God's presence and, and God's power to do the very thing that God had called them to do and to be the very people that God had called them to be. But I want you to see that their obedience that was characterized by their dependence and their desperation was reflected or displayed in a particular way. There was a particular way that their obedient, dependent spirit was reflected, and that was through prayer. They simply prayed. They simply prayed. When faced with the magnitude of the mission, when faced with the reality of the promise of the presence of, of God, they didn't sit down and figure out what to do to harness it. They didn't sit down and figure out what to do to accomplish it. They didn't sit down and figure out who was going to do what. They simply resided themselves out of desperation and dependence to pray. And as we go through the book of Acts, as we study through this, I, I, I hesitated this morning taking the time to show you this because I want you to see it as it unfolds. But as we go through the book of Acts, I want you to see that at every major turning point in the story of God's restoration, 
In the story of God's going forward of the gospel in the book of Acts, at every major turning point, you see it marked by fervent, corporate, dependent, and desperate prayer from God's people. At every major turning point in the book of Acts, you'll find God's people expressing their obedience and their desperation and their dependence upon God and his presence and his power through prayer. I mean, just right here, having just received the mission from Jesus and watching him descend and the angels say, no, get about your business, they, they immediately obey and begin to pray. Look at verse 14. Luke says, as after they returned to Jerusalem, that all of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. As you read on in Acts 1, as we read, faced with the reality that they needed to replace one of their own who had betrayed Jesus, faced with the decision of what to do and how to replace Judas, they didn't look around and, and put up a score sheet and do all the things that we would probably do. Luke records that they turned to God and they prayed. And they said, for your Lord, you know the hearts of men. We know that according to the word, he had to be a man who was an eyewitness to your resurrection. We know according to your word that this was not a surprise to you, that this was going to happen. David even said it in the Psalms. He was going to need to be replaced. Judas didn't surprise you. But Lord, now we've got to replace him. And only you know the hearts of men. You know the hearts of men, so you're going to have to show us who the right person is. And they put two men before themselves and before God. And I'll just explain this quickly because it's kind of weird, but, you know, we'll get it done. They cast lots to figure out who it was. Now, I want you to notice that in the Old Testament and in those time periods, casting lots was a common way that people would make decisions. But I want you to realize they didn't let the casting of lots determine the person that was going to be replacing Judas. Proverbs tells us that the all the rolls of dice are, are cast, but it's the Lord that determines the outcome. The casting of lots was a practical way which they would discern the spirit of God's decision as to who the person was that would replace Judas. You'll never see the casting of lots used again in the New Testament as a way that God's people would determine his will and his purposes going forward because in Acts chapter 2, we'll see God fulfilling his promise to give his people his spirit. And from that point forward, the people of God have the presence and power of God through the spirit of God to understand the mind and the will of God to make decisions. So they prayed. They said, you know the hearts of men. You know the person we're supposed to decide. The Spirit of God was not residing in them, guiding them at this time. So they cast lots, determining that God would show who that person was. And they said, you have determined this person. So faced with the magnitude of their mission and their lack of resources and ability to do the very thing God's called them to do, even faced with, with this decision and how to replace the one who had betrayed them already, their obedience, characterized by their desperation, is displayed by an absolute dependence upon prayer. It's reflected in prayer. Of all the priorities that Luke could have recorded of the early church, I mean, of all the things that were important to the early church, remember, there's the Lord, it is the Spirit of God himself that inspired Luke's work and Luke's writing of this book. It, of all the things that God wanted recorded about his people, of chief priority that Luke records in the life of the church is this dependence upon prayer. This obedience and this desperation for the presence and the power of God displayed through this activity of, of prayer. And when you get to know Luke, it's not surprising because more than any other writer of a, of a gospel record of Jesus' life, Matthew, 
or Mark or John, Luke is the one who most specifically and consistently records the activity of Jesus' prayer and the dependence that Jesus had upon prayer. And so it wouldn't be uncommon to see this carry through in the book of Acts. Let me just give you a, a little bit of a glimpse. Do you mind? I found this encouraging as I was doing this this week. If you've got your Bibles, flip backwards, flip left to the Gospel of Luke. I want you to see, where do the disciples learn to reflect this dependence upon God's power and God's presence through prayer? They learned it from Jesus himself. And Luke was extremely diligent in recording this for us. And I just want to show you. I just want you to feel the flow and get the rhythm of what they're doing here. Because we're going to see it throughout the book of Acts. And, and when we get to it in the rest of Acts, we're going to talk about the particular prayers. But I want you just to see this, this rhythm. And we'll start in Luke chapter 3. Jesus is about to be baptized. And if you have been in church for any period of time in your life, and as a kid or as an adult, you've heard the story. He gets into the water. He's going to be baptized. The sky parts. A dove falls. Jesus is baptized. And the heavens open. And an audible voice, voice comes out. The crowd thinks it's thunder. Luke 3, verse 21. Luke records that when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying... While he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in a bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. So baptism for Jesus was not just a religious ritual or or a hollow or empty ritual that he had to obey for any particular reason, but rather he is actively engaging with God the Father. Actively engaging in dependence with God, upon God the Father in his act of baptism. And he went into the water praying. Into the water praying to the Father. Flip over to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, Jesus is in the beginning stages of his ministry and he's about to choose the 12 disciples. He hasn't chosen the 12 yet. He hasn't chosen that, that inner core, that that. that, that number of, of men who he was going to pour his life out most diligently and, and, and powerfully to. He had disciples. He had people following him. There was a crowd, but he hadn't grabbed that inner 12 yet, and he doesn't have that inner inner core, that 12 that gets turned down to three as you read through the Gospels. He hasn't chosen them yet. He's, he's in this process. They're going to be the foundation of the church in, in the book of Acts, and one of them is going to replace Judas, as we see in Acts 1. And here's what Luke records. Luke 6, verse 12. It was at this time that he, talking about Jesus, went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. So before he chose the 12, he heads to the mountain, and he spends time in prayer, in dependence upon the Father to guide the decision that he was going to make in choosing the 12 men who he would pour his life into, who would later on become the foundation for the church that he's going to give his mission to, to go and be his witnesses through all the earth, who in 30 years actually courts turns the world upside down. So before his baptism, he enters into the water in prayer, in dependence and communion upon God. Before he begins his ministry in choosing the 12, he's in prayer. Independence upon God the Father. Flip over in Luke 9. Crazy story, but a huge moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. Luke 9, the, the transfiguration. Luke 9, look at verse 28. It says, some eight days after all of these sayings, he's 
talking about some of the teaching that Jesus was doing. He took along Peter and John and James. That's the big three. The 12 gets whittled down to three, like an inner core of, a, of the core. He took along Peter and John and James, and he went up into the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. It's always a strange story when two dead guys who've been dead for 800 years show up. But Jesus, in communion in, with God the Father, in prayer with God the Father, begins to reveal the depth of the glory of his person to these people. He doesn't just walk up on the mountain and click his heels together three times. I want to go home. I want to go home. He prays. And his face begins to shine. And the glory of God begins to be revealed in a way that had never been revealed before. Flip over to Luke chapter 22. I'm going to do this. I'm looking at my clock. I'm going to do this because you've got to see this. Luke chapter 22. I love the humanity of Jesus in Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, we'll start in verse 39. And when he came out and went, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and he prayed. He prayed. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed all the more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So at his baptism, you find Jesus praying as he enters into the water. At the beginning of his ministry, you find Jesus praying as he's determining who are going to be the men that he's going to build this thing on. As he's in his ministry, you'll find, and we don't go through him, him praying as he begins to teach and he begins to do the very miracles that reveal an aspect of the nature of his character. You see him taking his disciples on top of the mountain, the inner three, and showing them a reflection of the depth of the glory of the God who created all things as he is praying. And you see him on his way to the cross in the Mount of Olives in desperate human agony that if there was any other way for this to happen, that God would do it, but yet through prayer and dependence upon God. In the midst of what I can't even imagine, he's strengthened as he continues to pray. And then in Luke 23, on the cross, we find Jesus again praying. Luke 23, 32 says, there were two others who were criminals. They were led to be put to death with him, talking about Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right side and 
one on his left, and here's what Jesus said. He is hanging upon the cross. We are, I won't take the time to describe what he has been through already. I won't take the time to describe what he is going through at the moment. But you can mark my words. It is an agony, a physical pain, the likes of which none of you will probably ever experience in your life, and I will pray that you never experience in your life. And this is what we find coming from the person of Jesus. He prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And right before he takes his last breath, we find him again, praying. Verse 46, Jesus calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In his baptism, he's praying. In the beginning of his ministry, he's praying. Throughout his ministry, he's praying. When he's revealing the depths of the riches of the glory of God to the face of the three, he's praying. On his way to the cross, he's praying. On the cross, he's praying. And right now, at the right hand of God the Father, he is praying, ever giving intercession for you and for I. So it would be no surprise, it should be no surprise, when we read the book of Acts, starting in chapter 1, and we read all the way through the end of the book, that at every critical juncture and every critical point, we see the people of God reflecting their obedience towards God and dependence upon God through prayer to God. It should be no surprise that when the magnitude of the purpose for which we were created and the magnitude of the mission for which we were called begins to drop upon our hearts, that our desperation and our dependence upon the very presence and power of God to make us who he's called to be and to empower us to do what he's called us to do should reflect itself in prayer to God. Our dependence, our desperation should be reflected by our prayer. And here's the thing that troubled me. As I was reading this and thinking about myself and thinking about the church and studying this particular passage, I realized that in moments of, of, of true honesty, that prayer has become primarily ceremonial. I mean, if we're really honest, in the corporate life of God's people, in the life of church, prayer has become primarily ceremonial. The, the proportion of horizontal communication, the proportion of communication between you and I when it comes to talking about the purposes for which God has created. Let's be real, let me be even more specific. The proportion of conversation and communication on the horizontal level about how we will be the people God has created us to be and do the very thing that God has created us to do. The, the, the amount and the proportion of communication and conversation related to accomplishing the mission that God has called us to be about is exponentially larger than the amount of vertical conversation that exists between God and his people when it comes to how we will be the people he has called us to be and do the very thing that he has called us to do. In all honesty, I had a hard time, and this is sad. This is sad. I could not count. It only took two hands, let's put it this way. I could count on two hands the number of times that I had been in a meeting where there was an issue 
a purpose, a strategy, a plan, something put before us that needed a decision, not just at this church, but in other experiences I've had in ministry, that we had to make a decision based on something, and that decision was determined through prayer. It's appalling. I could count on two hands the number of times critical decisions were resolved in prayer. Not that there wasn't prayer that surrounded them, but that the decision, the understanding, the, the wisdom, the unity came in prayer. Prayer has become largely ceremonial. It's not odd to start a meeting with prayer. It's not odd to end a meeting of prayer. It's not odd to pray when we come together. It's, it's not odd to, to pray when you see God's people gather. That's what they should be doing. But I think it's largely ceremonial, if I'm honest. We don't see conflicts and decisions and purposes resolved in prayer. The problem with that, and it's a problem in my own life, and the problem with the church, and what has to, to be corrected in all of this is that, I'm going to let Richard Loveless say it best. We need a prayer that expresses our desperation for and dependence upon the Spirit of God. But let's be honest. The lack of dependent prayer only indicates that what it is that we want is simply what we believe we can achieve by ourselves. We seem pretty confident that we can produce the good results we want to see by our own efforts. And all of that simply says that we have become delusional about the magnitude of the mission and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Our lack of dependent, desperate prayer, our prayerlessness only reflects the reality that we have shrunk the magnitude of the mission of God and the purpose of God down to the size of ourselves. And we have sought to achieve for the glory of God <laughs> what we can achieve in and of ourselves. And we would never say it with our mouth. We would never say it with our mouth. But what we say implicitly and practically is that we are not desperate for or dependent upon the very Spirit of God to do the very thing that only He can do. That's what we're saying. It shouldn't be a shocker when you read Acts or when we come together that God's people pray. It shouldn't shock you. I mean, for those of you that have been in church for a long time, you've heard a lot of sermons about prayer, you've read a lot of books about prayer, you've got all the techniques about prayer, you know all those things. We're not going to get into that. It shouldn't shock you that God's people pray to him. But why is it so hard? <laughs> why do we do it so little? Does it really even matter? Does it even matter? And what are we saying by our prayerlessness? And let me say this. Is we're kind of setting up the rest of the book still. And I want you to notice this obedience and characterized by a dependence reflected through prayer, it matters a lot. It matters a lot. It matters because everything in life that really matters is beyond your control. <laughs> it matters because everything that really matters in this life is beyond your control. It's beyond your capacity to create and beyond your capacity to achieve. I mean, tell me, and I'll take a hand if somebody wants to raise it. 
Who in here can turn on their zeal for Jesus? Who in here can really just turn on at a moment's notice, at their own whim, the depth of their zeal for Jesus? I mean, if we're really honest, when we come in here, that's the thing that you get most frustrated about, isn't it? I mean, we come together as God's people and we, and we come into a service like this and we hear music and, and we love the music and the music moves us and someone talks and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not, but it motivates you to, to do something different with your life, to understand the depth of where you have, have missed the mark but where God's grace has, has supplied and, and become a, sufficient for you and, and you're convinced and encouraged and compelled to walk out different and it lasts for about 10 minutes. I mean, it's like a junior high youth rally. You get that big high when we come together and you're determined to do something different and you walk out and what you're frustrated about is that nothing actually changes because who can just turn on in their own will their zeal for Jesus? It takes the spirit of God and the power of God to overcome the hardness and the coldness and the sinfulness of our hearts and we can't just turn it on. It's beyond your control. I mean, who in here can just get their kids to love Jesus with all of their heart. Really. I mean, you might be able to spank them into obedience. I mean, you might be able to create rules and books and regulations and get them to act a certain way and look a certain way and say certain things, but who in here can actually turn the heart of their child to love Jesus with all that they are? Who can actually do that? Who in here can do that? The things that really matter in this life are beyond our control. And the magnitude of that should drive us in desperation and dependence to the very spirit of God and the power of God to do the very thing that he has promised. To enable us to be the very people that he's called us to be. So why don't we do it? Why don't we do it? Why is it simply ceremonial Pride, that's why. I'm not going to be difficult. It's pride. Pride is the chief reason that we fail to find ourselves dependent on and desperate for the, the Spirit of God. Prayer is not about us. It's, it's, it's not about us. It's always been hard for everybody because it's a humility issue. And prayer is a pride versus humility deal. When we pray, we're actually finally expressing a dependence. We're actually finally expressing a humility. We're actually finally expressing a, a desperation. That's why when life blows up, it gets easier. Your illusions of greatness and your outward expressions of perfection have now crumbled and fallen apart. It gets easier to be honest. That's why it gets easier to pray, but we know it's a struggle because even the people who walked with Jesus, the disciples who would become the foundation of the church in the book of Acts, experienced the life of prayer and dependency and desperation of Jesus upon prayer. And they looked at him and said, teach us how to do it. How, how do you do that? I've seen you do that and stuff happens. I've seen you do that in the midst of some of the most dark and chaotic circumstances and yet you have peace. And yet you're controlled. How, how in the world do you, you do that? And I want to point something out and we'll... we'll tie the, the bow here, hopefully, and maybe try to land this thing. Come back from my rabbit trail. Hopefully I caught a rabbit. I should have turned my phone off. I want you to notice something in, in Acts chapter 1 that's going to play out throughout the rest of the book of Acts. 
He's not, Luke is not just recording the, the private and the tangible and the personal life of, of prayer of the disciples. This, this prayer that we're going to talk about in the book of Acts, this is corporate prayer. This is where I think we become so deficient. This is where I think we, we, we really need to pray and, and humble ourselves and, and probably begin praying for God's spirit to strengthen us and resolve to continue in this. This was corporate prayer. When faced with the magnitude of this mission and their inability to accomplish it, they gathered together and all in the group prayed. They gathered together. They didn't go off to their individual places, but there was something unique, something powerful, something that occurs, and we'll see it throughout the book of Acts. When God's people gather together, pray together, and come to the place that Luke records where they were all in one accord, where they were united, where they were one accord. There was some kind of consensus that was found in their prayer. It wasn't that they had all these strategies laid out and they prayed and then went and made a decision. There was some kind of unity of mind, of heart, of purpose, of spirit, and confidence in what was going to occur and who they were and what they were going to do that came not apart from prayer but in their prayer together. They gathered together to pray, and they continued to pray until they had come to a consensus and a unity. And their prayer was what's called prevailing. I love how Luke records that they devoted themselves to prayer. And some of your Bibles said they prayed constantly, which means that they were persistent and, and diligent. It doesn't tell us how long they prayed, not that they prayed for 14 hours and 15 hours. That's not what he's talking about but there was a dependence, a desperation that was reflected in their persistence to pray. D.A. Carson, and we'll, we'll wrap it up here. D.A. Carson said the easiest thing about prayer is giving up. Is that true? The easiest thing about prayer is giving up. Carson goes on to say that we're all like naughty boys, who ring a doorbell and then run away. We tend to try to fit prayer into our life and to the busyness of our world. But it seemed to be the way of Jesus and the way of the disciples and the way of the church to somehow fit their life into the rhythm of their desperation and dependence upon God. They didn't seem to allow anything to rob them of this. The apostles learned a lesson that Jesus had taught them. An obedience that's characterized by a dependence that's reflected in a life of prayer. Have you learned it? My prayer is that as we go through the book of Acts, we will learn it because as I stand here, I don't see myself and I don't see us and I don't see the church in this culture as a people that would be called desperate. That would be a people that would be called dependent. We said it earlier, growing, yes, busy, yes, but desperate, no. So are you dependent upon yourself or are you dependent upon God's spirit? Will we become a people desperate for the spirit of God and dependent upon him to be who he has called us to be and do what he has called us to do? He's called us to enjoy him deeply, to engage his mission fully, and there are millions, countless millions who have never seen the glory of the gospel reflected in the beauty of the face of Christ. And the magnitude of that, 
I pray, will drive us and compel us towards a desperation because there's a lot to pray about. God does not simply involve us in his mission because he needs us, but because he loves us. Because he loves us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, help us to see the danger of of moving one step forward, one step ahead in our life, in this church, on your mission, without the fullness of your presence, without the fullness of your power. Jesus, give us a desire, give us a, a heart that will cry out dependently and desperately that you will show us your glory. And we cry out like Moses. I don't want everything else if I don't have you. I don't want the victory if I don't have your presence. God, make us a people who refuse to be dependent on ourselves, but who are desperate for you, your spirit, your power, and your presence among us. Amen.